Welcome to the Record of Our Forebears podcast. I'm your host, Roland Godet, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Summer Godet, mm-hmm. the daughter of Vivian Lee. You know what? All right. And so, the Record <laughs> of Our Forebears is uh, is where we discuss some of the stories of some of the dopest Black folks that you may or may not have heard of. So, grab your note taking out or pen and paper if you're old school. You're ready to take some notes, get familiar with some new people. So today we're going to uh, present to you, I got Moses Roper. Mm. And uh, who you got? I have Mary McLeod Bethune. You got a banger. All right, yeah, let's Mary go. McLeod a banger. <laughs> All right, so Moses Roper, um, he was born in 1815 in Caswell County, North Carolina. Um, his father was a southern planter named Henry Roper, and his mother was one of Henry Roper's slaves named Nancy. Um, She was uh, black and Native American is her heritage. Um, So when Henry Roper, the father, when his wife discovered that Henry had assaulted Nancy and gotten her pregnant, Mm. she tried to kill Nancy. And so he had to, uh, you know, protect Mm -hmm. his, uh, this woman who he assaulted from his own wife and so he ended up obviously successfully keeping her safe from her Mm -hmm. because Moses was born Mm -hmm. Um, when he was seven years old he was actually separated from his mother Um, and he writes in his narrative that um, at at some point he sees his mother again Mm -hmm. and his mother doesn't recognize him because it's been so many years and when she finally does it's like this huge emotional moment he kind of um, he compares it to Joseph and his brother's not recognizing him. Mm. And then once they do, once he reveals himself to who he is, he they have this emotional moment. So that's the how he recognizes. Wow. Yeah. And so um, he was enslaved by several men uh, in North Carolina and Florida. And he tried to escape a lot. He was just trying to escape all the time. Uh, he wrote that he had about 16, between 16 and 20 escape attempts. Wow. And he kept getting recaptured for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And he said and some of them were, some of them were like escape attempts that he included. Like I ran off the yard and they saw me immediately. Like, mm-hmm. and they, you know, pulled me back. Mm-hmm. And he said he was, you know, severely punished and abused once they got him back. Um, and some other times, uh, one other time when he tried to escape, uh, this was the time where he saw his mother again after years of not seeing her. Mm-hmm. He actually was escaping at the time. And what happened was he ran into a another slave, uh, another enslaved woman, and he saw her and she was going back to her house and he was thirsty. And he asked her, he said, can I go back to where you're going to and, and, and get something to drink? And as he began to talk to her, he noticed that she looked familiar, like she looked like his mom. So he started asking her questions about her mother and mm. he realized this was his sister. Wow. And so when he came back, you know, he presented himself to his mother. She didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, once they finally realized who he was and they had that emotional moment, he was like, okay, you know, it's good seeing y'all, but I got to be on my way because I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm on the run. Like they're looking for me. Mm-hmm. But his mom and his brothers convinced him to stay because they said, hey, just go out in the woods in the daytime and at night come back and, and stay with us. Okay. And so he did that for, I think he said maybe like a month. I can't remember exactly how long, maybe a couple of weeks mm-hmm. or a month. And he was doing that, going out in the woods during the day and coming back at night. And he said one night while he was asleep, he woke up to, to about 12 slave catchers surrounding him. Wow. And they caught him and took him to the jail until they could 
take him back to his mm-hmm. enslaver. Um, and so one of the things he said uh, about that uh, s- specific time of being recaptured was he said that when he got to the jail, he wrote, I was told afterwards that some of those men who took me were professing Christians. But to me, they did not seem to live up to what they professed. They did not seem by their practice, at least, to recognize that God to recognize God is their God. Who hath said, thou shalt not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master unto thee. He shall dwell with thee, even among you, in that place which he shall choose, in one of thy gates, where it liketh him best, and thou shalt not oppress him. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so he was, yeah, Moses Roper was a, he was, he was that guy. So he also wrote in this narrative uh, about the time where he, his last escape attempt, obviously the one that was successful. Um, he said that uh, as part of it, um, once he, he was in Florida at the time, he, he was in Georgia and he was, you know, he was doing pretty good, hadn't seen anybody. Um, he was making his way through and he actually accidentally ran into a group of farmers. So he's like, oh, Looks like I'm going back. That's what he was thinking. Mm-hmm. So he said he pretended to show one of the farmers his passport, you know, his uh, his papers. Mm-hmm. He said he started feeling for it everywhere, feeling around his coat and his hat, not finding it. And I can just imagine, you know, mm-hmm. how you be looking for something like, mm-hmm. where's my phone? Mm-hmm. You know, he's mm-hmm. feeling around. <laughs> and he said that he pretended it. He went back a little way, pretending to look for it like he dropped it. And he came back, said... He said, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I don't know where it is. Mm-hmm. And he said that the farmers were like, all right, man. So they actually wrote him papers wow. for him because they thought that he lost his papers and they were like, oh, we'll help you out. Wow. And so now he got official <laughs> papers <laughs> and he makes it. Eventually he makes it to New York. Well, bless God. Yeah. Well, praise God. Thank you, farmers. <laughs> we appreciate you. And so um, he actually uh, moved from New York shortly after he got there to Massachusetts mm-hmm. and then Vermont because he was always afraid that slave catchers would catch him. And he said they were so active in those areas mm-hmm. in, in uh, Massachusetts and New York. Mm-hmm. So, um, but because his father was white, he could pass for a white man sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, people weren't really paying close attention. He could pass for white. So that kept him safe, you know, for a certain period of time. Some of his uh, associates up north uh, urged him to join the army, you know, so that, you know, you join the army, you might not get, you know, some of that unwanted attention. Um, but he refused. He said, no, I don't want to do that. And so he decided instead, uh, with the help of some abolitionists, to board a boat destined for Great Britain. Mm. And so that was in the, in the 1830s. He went to Great Britain and settled in London. And it was there that he published his narrative. It's titled The Narrative of the, Narr- narrative of the Adventures and Escape of Moses Roper from American Slavery. And so his narrative was, is very descriptive about the horrors that he went through mm. like it has a lot of talks about a lot of the torture and stuff that one of his one of his enslavers was particularly cruel mm. and so he goes into a lot he he had like these tools and instruments that he invented essentially just for the purpose of uh flogging his slaves mm. and so um it's a very influential book. Uh, it was very popular in Great Britain at the time. And it actually was the first uh, narrative from an enslaved person that included illustrations. So I never even thought about that. Like, oh, I wonder what's the first narrative that had illustrations. Because mm-hmm. you know some of the narr- uh, narratives that we read, they have like little pictures and stuff. But mm-hmm. his, they believe, is the first one to actually have, to have those illustrations. Mm. Um, so 
he, he writes in. And so oftentimes when we talk about uh, a lot of the enslaved people and we talk about them because a lot of them are Christians and we're Christians and we want to get the history of Christianity, you know, in front of everybody's eyes and ears. Um, but one thing we don't think about is how a enslaver's claim to be a Christian affects how it can affect his slaves who are also Christian as well or mm -hmm. who they're trying to, even though they're, you know, torturing them, but they're still trying to convert these people to Christianity. And so he actually writes about that. And so he said that um, uh, his enslaver was a member of a Baptist church. The one I told you about that was really, really violent. Mm -hmm. He said it was a member of a Baptist church said that his slaves, thinking him a very bad example of what a profession Christian ought to be, would not join the connection that he belonged to, thinking that they must be a very bad set of people. So they all were Methodists. So all the slaves were Methodists. They would never join a Baptist church because they're like, if the Baptist you know, Christians are like our enslaver, then why would we go and join them? Mm -hmm. And so it's like they still believed God and they still believe God had something for them and was for them and was on their side, but they were like, they some they doing something wrong over there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so he lectured in churches of all denominations all across the British Isles, like in London and even in like small rural towns in Wales, like all over the country. Like, and there was times where he would go on tour by himself. You know, a lot of times they would go on tour with the other, like a, a white abolitionist to mm -hmm. kind of sponsor them. But his, he was kind of radical, like with his, with his uh, uh, opposition to slavery mm -hmm. that a lot of the, even the white abolitionists who were against slavery were uncomfortable with him. So he would go by himself. He was like, I don't, I don't need y'all. I don't mm -hmm. need y'all. And if you're not going to be with me all the way to condemning this the way it should be condemned, then I'm good. I'm just going to go on my own. His book became so popular, actually sold in Welsh as well as wow. English. Like they published it in Welsh. So um, during his lectures in Great Britain and Ireland, he retold the stories from his narrative and he also exhibited some of the tools that they used in the torture, in the torture including whips, chains, manacles, and there was all to highlight the brutality of American slavery. Mm, so okay. like he was... Yeah, he he wanted to get it in front of people's face. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just mm -hmm. something that's far off. It's not just something that you know he would show his scars off. You know, it's not just it's not something that's far away. Like I'm standing right here in front of you. Here mm -hmm. are my scars. This is how I got them. Mm -hmm. um, he he talks about one time specifically where he's with that very violent uh, enslaver, and he said that he he said the enslaver fed him the best meal he ever had, and he said he did this because he was about to give him the worst beating that he ever was going to get. So he said he gave him this great meal and then he took him into an area where they essentially tied his hands up and his feet like down low, stretched him out. So he was completely like prone, mm -hmm. um, hanging uh, prone from his hands. And uh, that enslaver gave him 50 flogs. His son gave him 50 flogs. His son-in-law gave him 50 flogs, mm -hmm. 50 lashes. Um, the overseer gave him 50 lashes. So that's like 200. <sighs> then the uh, enslaver came back for 50 more mm -hmm. and then just mm -hmm. left him there. And he had those scars all over his body. Mm -hmm. Like, and yeah, but his faith in God, like was. He, how else? Yeah. How, uh, else? yeah. how else do you survive that? Like, <laughs> how else do you survive that and not have just 
the hatred in your heart for, you know, for people. But he didn't. He he just looked at it as them dudes are not Christians. Like, mm -hmm. I don't care what they saying. Like, it's mm -hmm. no way that this this guy who done this to me. He he's not a Christian. And if people at his congregation, they calling him out. They must not be Christians. Mm hmm. So absolutely right. Yeah. I <laughs> so, mean, like that was the only conclusion he could draw from yeah, that. So yeah. um, he he ended up marrying a English woman. They have four daughters together. Um, he moved to Canada for a time. Uh, then they moved back to England. And sometime after 1861, he returned to the United States where he uh, lectured on various different subjects uh, about race and about um, the Africans who were in the States and Africa, their relationship with Africa, things like that. Um, and then, so he did that for a long time. He worked on a farm for a while. So the next 30 years of his life, so from 1861 to about 1891, he lectured and just became like a farm worker back in the United States. Mm. Not much is really known about what he did during this period of time. So the next time he kind of shows up on the scene is uh, in April 1891, he was found unconscious at a train station in Boston. And so they brought him to the hospital and he was diagnosed with heart and kidney complications was what they called it. They didn't know exactly what was wrong, wrong with him. He was older. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually those ailments led to his death on April, on April 15th, 1891. Said he had a dog with him. They said they had to drag the dog away from his from his bed. I guess the dog had been traveling with him. Mm, okay. So he was buried in a pauper's grave in Boston, Massachusetts uh, because he was he was poor. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what happened to his family. At, like, were they still left? Were they alive? Were they still wow. in England? Like, it just not much is known about him after uh, he came back to the United States in 1861. Um, although he was buried in a pauper's grave at the time that he died, um, because of his, uh, his history and his book and what he was known for his abolitionism, it was big news in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Like they wrote about him, mm -hmm. you know, like dying and it was actually like a, a huge, like it was a big deal, mm -hmm. but he was buried in a pauper's grave. I actually tried to look up and see where the grave was. It's nobody, there's no, at least I couldn't find any information mm -hmm. on where the grave was, but yeah, so Moses Roper, Moses Roper, I would recommend that, I mean, it's heavy, mm -hmm. but that his narrative, the narrative of the adventures and escape of Moses Roper from American slavery is like required reading. Like his mm -hmm. narrative, it's, it's heavy though, mm -hmm. but yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> what an amazing story. And the only answer that I have for that life is, but God. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so I'd like to uh, talk about Mary McLeod Bethune. Now, Mary Jane McLeod was born on July 10th, 1875. She was the 15th of Ooh. 17 children. Uh, her parents, Samuel and Patsy McIntosh McLeod, were formerly enslaved African Americans. Mm. Um, she was born in Maysville, South Carolina. Now, as a child, she quickly discovered the value of education. Unlike her parents and all but two of her siblings, Bethune uh, was born free. And she was formally educated um, at the Maysville School, a Presbyterian mission school for African-Americans. Oh, wow. So shortly after her graduation in 1886, Bethune continued her education on scholarship at the Scotia Seminary for Girls, now Barbara Scotia College, 
in Concord, North Carolina. Now, upon graduation in 1894, Bethune initially planned to become a Christian missionary in Africa. Oh, wow. After teaching and working among South Carolina African-Americans, she realized, and, uh, and here's a quote from her, is what she said, Africans in America needed Christ and school just as much as Africans in Africa. Mm. My life work lay not in Africa, but in my own country. Wow. So in 1898, at the age of 23, Mary McLeod married Albertus Bethune. The marriage lasted less than a decade because Albertus deserted the family. Wow. So he left in 1907. Mm. The couple had one son, Albert McLeod Bethune, and it was just a lot for her, as you can imagine, yeah. juggling family and work. Um, she also taught in Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, Illinois. She taught all around um, the U.S. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was between 1895 and 1903 before settling um, in Daytona, Florida. Mm -hmm. So if many of you all know her, we know about her work in mm -hmm. Florida. Yep. Uh, beginning in 1904, she opened a high school, mm. a hospital. <laughs> um, and the Day Daytona Normal and Industrial Institute. Did you say a high school and a hospital? Yes. <laughs> and a school. And a school. Um, and probably a like school. A, a college, a yeah, normal, normal school. school yeah. Many of our colleges were initially called the normal school. Then they end up becoming state universities, well, they right? They teach you normal stuff. Just normal you know? stuff. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, our modern day normal schools are our state universities, yep. right? Um, and, the, and the Daytona Normal and Industrial Institute for Negro Girls. Mm. Now, the popularity of the Daytona Normal led to its merging with the Methodist-run Cookman Institute for Men mm. in Jacksonville in 1923, thus becoming the Bethune-Cookman College, which yep. we know of today. Yep. Bethune served as uh, the Merge College's first president from 1923 to 1942, and then again from 1945 to 1947. She was, at the time, one of the few female college presidents in the nation. Mm -hmm. So while establishing crucial educational institutions um, like Bethune-Cookman, uh, Bethune began decades of leadership among women's groups when she was elected president of the Florida Federation of Colored Women in 1917. In 1924, she was elected president of the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW, mm, which that. was founded by, yes, St. Pierre Ruffin in 1896. We've heard about the NACW mm -hmm. um, through Mary Church, Church Terrell. Terrell yep. Now, as an NACW president, Bethune tried to steer it beyond traditional self-help and moral uplift towards the politics of agitation for integration mm. by attacking racial discrimination and segregation in the federal government. So she was trying to get into that civil rights activism like before the civil rights movement. Yes. Like so the this you know, is, modern that we know civil yes, rights movement. Yes, this is early foundations of civil rights mm. activism. This like is civil it. disobedience. Yes, yeah. what we know of. Mm. And so her aim was directly at the top, mm -hmm. the federal government. Mm -hmm. She was frustrated by the difficulty um, of eliminating Jim Crow. Here we go, talking about Jim Crow in the U.S. again, mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. government, and in the internal politics of the NACW. She ended up leaving. Mm -hmm. um, she left that association 
uh, due to the politics, which we know a lot of our leaders oftentimes become frustrated with the politics of things um, in 1935. And then she founded the Negro, the National Council of Negro Women. Mm. So she founded the NC. NW. Mm-hmm. And this organization had more ex- explicit civil rights um, agendas. Okay. So her friendship, uh, which I didn't talk about earlier, but she had a friendship with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. Um, and this was one of the reasons for the creation of the NCNW. And that friendship led to Bethune becoming the director of the National Youth Administration's Division of Negro Affairs. And she held that post, that national post from 1936 to 1943. Now, as the director, she led an organization that trained Thousands. They said tens of thousands of um, black youth for skilled positions that eventually became available um, in like defense plants mm-hmm. during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and she made sure that black colleges participated in the civilian pilot training program. And um, that program graduated some of the nation's first black pilots. Awesome. Um, now, through the uh, NYA, Bethune uh, became the most prominent African-American in President Franklin's administration. Mm. And because of her friendship with Mrs. Roosevelt, with First Lady Roosevelt, she did influence government policy. Mm. And she influenced policy throughout the 30s. Now, she was also the chair of the informal black cabinet of senior African-American officials in the Roosevelt administration, Mm. which probably is like a precursor to like, I don't know, black caucus or things of that nature, right? Mm. Um, Bethune was instrumental in integrating the Red Cross. Now, um, I don't believe we talked about it, but the Red Cross uh, had a lot of policies. And so there were issues with um, black troops not being able to get blood Mm -hmm. um, because they were discriminated against um, by the Red Cross. But she integrated the Red Cross, um, increased public awareness of lynching, of voter discrimination in federal elections, and segregation on interstate trains and buses. We owe a lot to to Bethune um, for this. Um, And in 1949, President Truman appointed her to lead the U.S. delegation to Liberia to observe the uh, inauguration of uh, President William V.S. Truman. So we talked about Liberia before, Mm -hmm. um, about why that, um, why it was created. Um, But she she led a a delegation there. And then in 51... 1951, she served on President Truman's Committee of 12 for National Defense. Just an amazing, an amazing life here. Um, She died of a heart attack on May 18th in 1955 at the age of 79. So she was able to see, you know, a lot of those Mm -hmm. things, you know, just come to pass and, um, in her fight and we know that her fight probably allowed a lot of legislation a lot of things yeah. to move um, on, on behalf of you know the African American population she lived long enough of course to see the U.S. Supreme Court strike down um, the school segregation right mm-hmm. Brown versus Board of Education she died seven months mm-hmm. before the beginning yeah. of the Montgomery bus boycott wow. um, which she of course again she ushered in and the modern civil rights movement yeah. so um, we know of you know her prominent male counterparts we know about um, a lot of these names in the civil rights movement 
about our Dr. Kings, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know a lot about the women who, yeah. who you know, laid the groundwork. And Mary McLeod Bethune was one of those yeah. women. And yeah. It's crazy because a lot of times when I just remember learning, when I learned about Mary McLeod Bethune in school, the thing that they focused on more was just that she was an educator. Which is mm-hmm. important, and it's important that we recognize her as an educator. Particularly, she started like you know, a university and mm-hmm. hospitals, and you know, all kinds Amazing. of stuff, and had taught for years. And that is an important part of her life. But she was more than that. Mm-hmm. Like to learn about her, you know, civil rights activism and how she kind of was a precursor. Like, so we always talk about standing on the shoulders of MLK, mm-hmm. and standing on the shoulders of all the people, Diane Nash, mm-hmm. and all the people who fought during the civil rights era. But they were standing on her shoulders mm-hmm. because she didn't live to see the Montgomery bus boycott. No. But she was trying to create groups that were specifically there for like civil disobedience in mm-hmm. order to to get the rights of, you know, for, for African-Americans to be able to, you know, live safely in the mm-hmm. you know, United States and be treated equally. So mm-hmm. that's incredible. It is. It's yeah. amazing. Just an amazing story, an amazing life. I feel like um, just thinking about her life, many women, uh, black women, white women, they can see themselves and find encouragement through her, mm-hmm. through her testimony of a life being a single parent, yep. um, but still understanding I have another job. I am a mother, but I also have this job, you know, and I'm going to go for it in yep. that as well. So and you can do both. You can be a great you mother do, and you can do it all. Exactly. <laughs> you do it all. You can do it all. <laughs> You're doing it all. Mm. So thank you for joining us. And we really appreciate, you know, anybody who listens and everybody who listens. So join us next time. And, you know, as we. Uh, continue on we're going to continue to introduce you to more people and we're going to have some different types of topics too uh, coming up in the next few weeks so it'll be very interesting so we hope that you join us on our journey as we go through history and you know learn about some people and some things that you may or may not have known about and hopefully this has been uh, fruitful for you and we appreciate you peace bye